The Life of Christ by Venerable Fulton J. Sheen Dedicated in filial affection to Mary, the triple author, first as mother who didst give to the Son of the living God a body with which he borrowed human guilt and paid back death with life, then as author of these words about the Word, for only in dark hours when gall with ink did mix she made the writer see Christ and crucifix, and last as author with the Spirit of Christ in each reader's heart, acting on each page as the sweet incendiary of that love we fall just short of in all love. Preface Satan may appear in many disguises like Christ, and at the end of the world will appear as a benefactor and philanthropist. But Satan never has and never will appear with scars. Only heaven's love can show the marks of love's greatest gift in a night forever past. Actually, there are only two philosophies of life. One is first the feast, then the headache. The other is first the fast, and then the feast. Deferred joys purchased by sacrifice are always sweetest and most enduring. The ancients taught that any prosperity or success enjoyed without suffering on the part of someone excited the displeasure of the gods. Lucretius tells of an Egyptian king who relinquished all relations with his friend Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, because his prosperity had no flaws in it, something of bitterness which springs up in the midst of the fountain of sweetness. Christianity, unlike any other religion in the world, begins with catastrophe and defeat. Sunshine religions and psychological inspirations collapse in calamity and wither in adversity. But the life of the founder of Christianity, having begun with the cross, ends with the empty tomb and victory. The life of Christ differs from all other lives in many respects, three of which may be mentioned. 1. The cross was at the end of his life in time, but at the beginning of it in the intent and purpose of his coming. Hence his biographers, who were martyred in witness to the truth they wrote, devoted one-third of the first three Gospels and one-fourth of the fourth Gospel to the events of his Passion and Resurrection. 2. As man did not come wholly out of nature, for man with his mind has a mysterious X which is not contained in his chemical and biological antecedents, so Christ did not come wholly out of humanity. 3. His legacy was not an ethic or a collection of moral precepts, nor an awakening to social sin because men would not hear of personal sin, it was a confrontation of human guilt with the forgiving love of God, which cost God something. Hating sin, loving sinners, condemning communism, loving communists, despising heresy and loving the heretics, receiving the erring back into the treasury of his heart, but never the error into the treasury of his wisdom, forgiving sinners whom society already condemned, but intolerant of those who sinned and were not found out. He reserved his most scathing outbursts for those who were sinners and denied sin, who were guilty and said they had only a complex. Then it was he who wept in silence in the presence of human sorrow and an open grave, gave way to unrestrained outbursts of grief as he contemplated the doom and downfall of those who have moral cancer and refused to use the remedy he purchased at a greater price than the blood of lambs and bullocks. The modern world which denies personal guilt and admits only social crimes, which has no place for personal repentance but only public reforms, has divorced Christ from his cross. The bridegroom and bride have been pulled apart. What God hath joined together, men have torn asunder. As a result, to the left is the cross, to the right is Christ. Each has awaited new partners who will pick them up in a kind of second and adulterous union. Communism comes along and picks up the meaningless cross. Western post-Christian civilization chooses the unscarred Christ. Communism has chosen the cross in the sense that it has brought back to an egotistic world a sense of discipline, self-abnegation, surrender, hard work, study, and dedication to supra-individual goals. 
but the cross without Christ is sacrifice without love. Hence, communism has produced a society that is authoritarian, cruel, oppressive of human freedom, filled with concentration camps, firing squads, and brainwashings. The Western post-Christian civilization has picked up the Christ without his cross. But a Christ without a sacrifice that reconciles the world to God is a cheap, feminized, colorless, itinerant preacher who deserves to be popular for his great Sermon on the Mount, but also merits unpopularity for what he said about his divinity on the one hand and divorce, judgment, and hell on the other. This sentimental Christ is patched together with a thousand commonplaces, sustained sometimes by academic etymologists who cannot see the word for the letters, or distorted beyond personal recognition by a dogmatic principle that anything which is divine must necessarily be a myth. Without his cross, he becomes nothing more than a sultry precursor of democracy, or a humanitarian who taught brotherhood without tears. The problem now is, will the cross, which communism holds in its hands, find Christ before the sentimental Christ of the Western world finds the cross? It is our belief that Russia will find the Christ before the Western world unites Christ with his redemptive cross. For those who seek a strictly chronological life of Christ in a geographical setting, we recommend as the best that of Giuseppe Ricciotti, The Life of Christ, 1954. Our work does not concern itself with biblical criticism, partly because this has been aptly treated in Ricciotti, Grand Maison, Lagrange, and others, and also because no critical theory endures much beyond a generation. The Life of Christ has been many years in writing, but the deeper understanding of the unity of Christ and his cross came when Christ kept the author very close to his cross in dark and painful hours. Learning comes from books, penetration of a mystery from suffering. It is hoped that sweet intimacy with the crucified Christ which trial brought will break through these pages, giving to the reader that peace which God alone can bring to souls, and enlightening them to see that every sorrow is really the shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Chapter 1. The Only Person Ever Pre-Announced History is full of men who have claimed that they came from God, or that they were gods, or that they bore messages from God. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Christ, Lao Tse, and thousands of others, right down to the person who founded a new religion this very day. Each of them has a right to be heard and considered, but as a yardstick external to and outside of whatever is to be measured is needed, so there must be some permanent tests available to all men, all civilizations, and all ages, by which they can decide whether any of these claimants, or all of them, are justified in their claims. These tests are of two kinds, reason and history. Reason, because everyone has it, even those without faith. History, because everyone lives in it and should know something about it. Reason dictates that if any one of these men actually came from God, the least thing that God could do to support his claim would be to pre-announce his coming. Automobile manufacturers tell their customers when to expect a new model. If God sent anyone from himself, or if he came himself with a vitally important message for all men, it would seem reasonable that he would first let men know when his messenger was coming, where he would be born, where he would live, the doctrine he would teach, the enemies he would make, the program he would adopt for the future, and the manner of his death. By the extent to which the messenger conformed with these announcements, one could judge the validity of his claims. Reason further assures us that if God did not do this, then there would be nothing to prevent any impostor from appearing in history and saying, I come from God, or an angel appeared to me in the desert and gave me this message. In such cases there would be no objective, historical way of testing the messenger. We would have only his word for it, and of course he could be wrong. If a visitor came from a foreign country to Washington and said he was a diplomat, the government would ask him for his passport and other documents testifying that he represented a certain government. His papers would have to antedate his coming. 
If such proofs of identity are asked from delegates of other countries, reason certainly ought to do so with messengers who claim to have come from God. To each claimant, reason says, What record was there before you were born that you were coming? With this test, one can evaluate the claimants. Socrates had no one to foretell his birth. Buddha had no one to pre-announce him and his message or tell the day when he would sit under the tree. Confucius did not have the name of his mother and his birthplace recorded, nor were they given to men centuries before he arrived so that when he did come, men would know he was a messenger from God. But with Christ it was different. Because of the Old Testament prophecies, his coming was not unexpected. There were no predictions about Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tse, Muhammad, or anyone else, but there were predictions about Christ. Others just came and said, Here I am, believe me. They were, therefore, only men among men, and not the divine in the human. Christ alone stepped out of that line, saying, Search the writings of the Jewish people and the related history of the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. It is true that the prophecies of the Old Testament can be best understood in the light of their fulfillment. The language of prophecy does not have the exactness of mathematics. Yet if one searches out the various messianic currents in the Old Testament and compares the resulting picture with the life and work of Christ, can one doubt that the ancient predictions point to Jesus and the kingdom which he established? God's promise to the patriarchs that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed, the prediction that the tribe of Judah would be supreme among the other Hebrew tribes until the coming of him whom all nations would obey, the strange yet undeniable fact that in the Bible of the Alexandrian Jews, the Septuagint, one finds clearly predicted the virgin birth of the Messiah. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 about the patient sufferer, the servant of the Lord, who will lay down his life as a guilt offering for his people's offenses, the perspectives of the glorious, everlasting kingdom of the house of David. In whom but Christ have these prophecies found their fulfillment? From an historical point of view alone, here is uniqueness which sets Christ apart from all other founders of world religions. And once the fulfillment of these prophecies did historically take place in the person of Christ, not only did all prophecies cease in Israel, but there was discontinuance of sacrifices when the true Paschal Lamb was sacrificed. Turn to pagan testimony. Tacitus, speaking for the ancient Romans, says, People were generally persuaded in the faith of the ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail and that from Judea was to come the master and ruler of the world. Suetonius, in his account of the life of Vespasian, recounts the Roman tradition thus, it was an old and constant belief throughout the East that by indubitably certain prophecies the Jews were to attain the highest power. China had the same expectation, but because it was on the other side of the world, it believed that the great wise man would be born in the West. The annals of the Celestial Empire contain the statement, In the twenty-fourth year of Chao Wang of the dynasty of the Chu, on the eighth day of the fourth moon, a light appeared in the southwest which illumined the king's palace. The monarch, struck by its splendor, interrogated the sages. They showed him books in which this prodigy signified the appearance of the great saint of the West, whose religion was to be introduced into their country. The Greeks expected him, for Aeschylus, in his Prometheus, six centuries before his coming, wrote, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse, until God appears, to accept upon his head the pangs of thy own sins vicarious. How did the Magi of the East know of his coming? Probably from the many prophecies circulated through the world by the Jews, as well as through the prophecy made to the Gentiles by Daniel centuries before his birth. Cicero, after recounting the sayings of the ancient oracles and the sibyls about a king whom we must recognize to be saved, asked in expectation, To what man and to what period of time do these predictions point? The fourth eclogue of Virgil recounted the same ancient tradition and spoke of a chaste woman smiling on her infant boy with whom the Iron Age would pass away. Suetonius quoted a contemporary author to the effect that the Romans were so fearful about a king who would rule the world that they ordered all children born that year to be killed, an order that was not fulfilled except by Herod. 
Not only were the Jews expecting the birth of a great king, a wise man, and a savior, but Plato and Socrates also spoke of the Logos and of the universal wise man yet to come. Confucius spoke of the saint, the sibyls of a universal king, the Greek dramatist of a savior and redeemer to unloose man from the primal eldest curse. All these were on the Gentile side of the expectation. What separates Christ from all men is that first he was expected. Even the Gentiles had a longing for a deliverer or redeemer. This fact alone distinguishes him from all other religious leaders. A second distinguishing fact is that once he appeared, he struck history with such impact that he split it in two, dividing it into two periods, one before his coming, the other after it. Buddha did not do this, nor any of the great Indian philosophers. Even those who deny God must date their attacks upon him A.D. so-and-so, or so many years after his coming. A third fact separating him from all the others is this. Every other person who ever came into this world came into it to live. He came into it to die. Death was a stumbling block to Socrates. It interrupted his teaching. But to Christ, death was the goal and fulfillment of his life, the goal that he was seeking. Few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. He presented himself as a savior rather than merely as a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless he also gave them the power to be good after rescuing them from the frustration of guilt. The story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. In the person of Christ, however, it was his death that was first and his life that was last. The scripture describes him as the lamb slain, as it were, from the beginning of the world. He was slain in intention by the first sin and rebellion against God. It was not so much that his birth cast a shadow on his life and thus led to his death, it was rather that the cross was first and cast its shadow back to his birth. His has been the only life in the world that was ever lived backward. As the flower in the crannied wall tells the poet of nature, and as the atom is the miniature of the solar system, so too his birth tells the mystery of the gibbet. He went from the known to the known, from the reason of his coming manifested by his name, Jesus or Savior, to the fulfillment of his coming, namely his death on the cross. John gives us his eternal prehistory, Matthew his temporal prehistory, by way of his genealogy. It is significant how much his temporal ancestry was connected with sinners and foreigners, these blots on the escutcheon of his human lineage suggest a pity for the sinful and for the strangers to the covenant. Both these aspects of his compassion would later on be hurled against him as accusations. He is a friend of sinners, he is a Samaritan. But the shadow of a stained past foretells his future love for the stained. Born of a woman, he was a man and could be one with all humanity. Born of a virgin, who was overshadowed by the Spirit and full of grace, he would also be outside that current of sin which infected all men.